Say hello to a new friend on an old road. Take a two-lane trip of memories into mysteries unknown. Come along for the ride. Jim Hinckley's America. Jim Hinckley's America. Hey, good morning, everyone. A little bit of music from Joe, Woody, and the boys, the road crew, roadcrew66.com. Theme songs for your epic road trip adventure. Today, we're going to be talking about three uniquely American cars as we wrap up our uh, automotive series this week. The Chevrolet Corvette, the legendary Duesenberg, and the lowly Edsel. And we're kicking off a great fun contest to win a copy of my latest book, Here We Are on Route 66. With each episode of Wake Up With Jim, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning, and Coffee With Jim on Sunday morning, our travel podcast, uh, we're going to be giving you a letter. The letter will, uh, uh, you put them together and you will find the name of a business on Route 66 and the community in which it is located. I will need both if you're going to be a winner. Of course, the programs are archived here on Podbean. So you can go back if you happen to miss a program. But uh, at the end of the program, I'll give you today's letter. Uh, With that said, I want to get to uh, our automotive segment. And I want to then I'm going to share with you a little bit from our sponsors at uh, Uranus Fudge Company and General Store and the magical, wonderful, delightful city of Tucumcari, New Mexico. And then I'll tell you a little bit about next week's uh, series on Wake Up With Jim. Let's kick this off with the story of the Duesenberg, Monarch of the Highway. You know, when the now legendary Duesenberg Model J made its debut at the New York Automobile Salon in December 1928, the Duesenberg name was already quite well known among racing and automotive enthusiasts. The Duesenberg brothers, Fred and Augie, had been building some of the most advanced racing engines available for nearly two decades. In addition, they had also built quality aeronautical engines during World War I, marine engines, and as 1920, a limited production automobile that featured an array of technologically advanced features. It's a little bit of historic trivia. Like my pa always said, better fill a head with useless knowledge than no knowledge at all. The Duesenberg brothers started out with bicycles. The Model J Duesenberg was to be the crown jewel in the stuff of legend. Its massive chromed and polished straight-eight engine was a mechanical work of art. With twin overhead camshafts and four valves per cylinder and a drop-forged crankshaft made of heat-treated chrome nickel and aluminum alloy pistons, it had a gear-driven oil pump that provided full pressure with a capacity of 22 gallons per minute. The 8-gallon cooling system kept everything cool, and to ensure exceptionally smooth performance, The crankshaft, cradled in five oversized main bearings, was counterweighted and balanced. A vibration dampener with two 16-ounce cartridges of mercury completed the package. Rated at 265 horsepower, it was the most powerful production car in America. For 1932, perfection was improved upon with the introduction of the supercharged SJ. 
that increased horsepower to 320. In the months preceding the auto show, E.L. Cord, a master of promotion and publicity, had stoked the public's interest with carefully prepared press releases. One of the releases proclaimed that with a standard touring body and with top and windshield up and fenders on, the Duesenberg had attained 160 miles per hour, 116 miles per hour, and a speed of 89 miles per hour has been reached in second gear. These feats were accomplished at a time when the latest Cadillac, rated at 95 horsepower, was lauded for its performance, and the Packard 640, rated at 160 horsepower, was proclaimed king of the road. In an initial speed test of a convertible coupe SJ at the Indianapolis track, the top speed came in just under 130 miles per hour. A few years later, professional driver Abe Jenkins pushed a Duesenberg to 152.1 miles per hour and set a 24-hour record average speed of 135.5 miles per hour at Bonneville. But the Duesenberg was not just a car known for its go. The coach work offered was some of the finest available. Many binders, buyers chose to personalize their cars and hired the finest craftsmen on both sides of the Atlantic to transform them. Even in an era of limited production, opulent automobiles and classic styling, the Duesenberg was in a league of its own. It was a massive in size. The wheelbases ran from 142.5 to 153.5 inches. With custom coachwork, it often tipped the scale at 5,000 pounds. The cost of the Model J, $8,500 for a chassis was nothing short of astounding in 1930 when $530 could get you a shiny new Ford Coupe. As a result, the mighty Duesenberg was truly the car for the discriminating few, and the list of owners reads like a who's who of the period. Frank Morgan, who played the great and powerful Oz in the film version of The Wizard of Oz, Greta Garbo, Jackie Coogan, Colonel Jacob Schick of Schick Shavers. A fortunate few chose to own several, Philip Wrigley, the chewing gum king, he owned five. Gary Cooper had two, not at the same time, and Clark Gable also had two. Few automobiles have combined speed, performance, and luxury as one package as successfully as in the Duesenberg. Even fewer have become a metaphor for something without equal. It's a doozy. We fast forward now in our story to 1953. The Motorama at New York City's Waldorf Astoria was full of surprises. However, few of those would have as much far-reaching impact as a prototype roadster. Boldly named Corvette, the result of a last-minute change from Corvair. The response was so intense that General Motors management authorized production to commence immediately. And just over six months later, on June 30th, 1953, the first production Corvette was completed at the rate of about five units per day, an additional 299 soon followed. For those who had been following the automotive trends of the post-war years, the excitement stirred by the new Chevrolet Corvette Roadster came as no surprise. European sports cars had been the focus of a rapidly expanding niche market for several years before the Corvette's introduction. 
1952, 11,000 sports cars were registered in the United States, which marked a dramatic increase from 100 reported just five years earlier. Initially, the Corvette was planned to be a steel-bodied vehicle, but fiberglass at GM, the new material was known by the name GRP, or glass-reinforced plastic, proved to be a viable and cost-effective material for low-production specialty cars, such as the Kaiser Darren that was being built in Jackson, Michigan in 1952. All 300 Corvettes produced in 1953 were white. The options list was scant. Signal-seeking AM radio, heater, white wall tires. A base price of $3,498, more than that of a Jaguar, and a drivetrain that was little more than a modified version of what could be found in a four-door sedan. The expected rush never materialized. But 255 of those original Corvettes are still known to exist. By December 1953, GM's Corvette production facility was completed in St. Louis, Missouri, with plans for annual production of 10,000 units. But the optimism gave way to reality. And at the end of the following year, dealers were holding 1,000 unsold units, almost one-third of the entire year's production. Many in General Motors management were in favor of pulling the plug on the project. Almost as quickly as serious discussions to do so commenced, an emergency in the form of a competitor arose. In late 1954, Ford introduced its sporty Thunderbird Roadster, and the only competition GM could provide was the Corvette. The addition of a V8 engine for 1955 moved the Corvette closer to being what its design indicated was, a sports car. But there were still serious shortcomings, such as its suspension, for 1955, the Corvette did not share the new ball joint front suspension employed on regular passenger cars. Instead, the old front suspension introduced in 1945, Chevrolet's was introduced. Another detriment to the Corvette meeting its full potential was that until the end of the model year, the only trans option was the two-speed power glide. A long option list and new array of available colors was not enough to breathe life into the Corvette and only 700 cars were produced for 1955. Obviously, if production were to continue, dramatic and immediate change was needed. Topping the list of changes made for 1956 were performance packages that included dual four-barrel carburation and a V8 engine rated at 240 horsepower. Finally, sports car enthusiasts had a car to respond to, and production surged to almost 3,500 units. The following year was a replay of 56. The rest, as they say, is history. The Corvette's initial shortcomings have largely been forgotten or even overlooked, and the Corvette today is internationally recognized as America's sports car. On the other end of the spectrum, we have the lowly Edsel. Was it lemon or was it lemonade? The Edsel was conceived to fill the market gap between the Mercury and Lincoln brands. Marketing said it would be a sure winner, according to Ford Motor Company, surveys, design teams, and management. In January 1957, Richard Krava, general manager of the Edsel division, said, the new Edsel line of cars will surpass the originally announced first-year sales goal of 200,000 units. As it turned out, Everyone was wrong. 
The result was a loss of $250 million and a new face for the term flop. The car that looked like a Buick sucking a lemon was named for the son of Henry Ford, and it had been initially planned for 1957. However, production delays and other associated problems resulted in the car's introduction as a 1958 model on September 4th, 1957, just in time for a major economic recession. The downturn that year was so severe that Dodge sales were off by 47%, Pontiac sales dropped 28%, Mercury sales plummeted by 48%. Then there were the issues regarding quality control and glitches with futuristic components such as the push-button automatic shift in the center of the steering wheel. As a result, sales for the first year were dismal, and they barely topped 60,000 units. For 1959, the number dropped to under 44,000. The Edsel was given a facelift for 1960 in the hopes that the project could be salvaged. The Edsel's now famous grill was replaced with a more conventional design, reminiscent of that used on GM's Pontiac. The horse collar grill was retained only on the tail lamps, but the revamp was to no avail. Fewer than 3,000 Edsels were produced that year before production ended with very little fanfare. Today, the Edsel enjoys a small but devoted following. Some of the rarer versions, such as the Bermuda Wagon, Corsair, and Citation Convertibles, command premium prices in the collector car market. Hey, I hope you found this little bit of automotive history of interest. Next week, we're going to be talking about classic roadside attractions. Uh, the list includes some old favorites like Rock City, Tennessee, and some new ones like the Arenas Fudge Company and General Store. And I hope you can join us for the programs. It'll be on Monday, Wednesday, Friday morning, 6.30 Mountain Standard Time. Now, your letter of the day to begin the contest is D, as in dog. What we're going to need is the name of the business and the city in which the business is located. Uh, with each program, Wake Up With Jim or Coffee With Jim, our travel broadcast on Sunday, a new letter will be given. First one with the right answer wins a copy of my latest book. Here we are on Route 66. Well, until we meet again, mi amigos, adios and vaya con Dios. <laughs> Say hello to a new friend on an old road. Take a two-lane trip of memories Into mysteries unknown Come along for the ride Jim Hinckley's America Jim Hinckley's America Not much to go on, but today's letter is D. D as in dog. Coffee with Jim, Sunday morning, 7 o'clock. 
will give you another clue. First right answer wins a copy of my latest book. Here we are on Route 66. 